0: one, basic hip. Welcome to the Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. This week's guest is guitarist Bobby Broom. From his album Plays for Monk on the Origin Records label, this is Ask Me Now. My guest is guitarist Bobby Broom. His new album on the Origin Records label is called Plays for Monk, uh, with his trio featuring Dennis Carroll and Kobe Watkins. And it's my pleasure to welcome Bobby Broom to the show. Thanks so much for being here.
1: Thank you. My pleasure to be here.
0: Uh, let me ask uh, the obvious question first. Why uh, why a Monk record?
1: Well, because Monk is uh, an icon in the jazz world and uh, in the music Uh, world uh, as far as I'm concerned, so it's, a I think, part of the uh, practice for jazz musicians to some degree or another to have to deal with Monk's music. I mean, he's got a considerable number of standard compositions that all jazz musicians must play, and uh, I guess I just uh, took it a step or two further.
0: When do you remember becoming consciously aware of Monk's music?
1: Well, as a teenager, you know, uh, like I said, becoming aware of straight note chaser, and uh, you know, well, you need all of the standard compositions that um, that he composed uh, that we, uh, as as jazz musician students. Uh, Etc. Uh, had to learn uh, as a part of the the, the practice of, of uh, or the the, the uh, pursuit of being a jazz musician.
0: Uh, you've spent a lot of time uh, with Sonny Rollins, who of course played with Monk, and I wonder if uh, things that you've taken from Sonny uh, or, or even from Sonny's way of approaching Monk's music inform the way you approach Monk's music.
1: Well, I think that there are uh, indirect. Connections that are made, musician to musician, and via the music, you know, uh, that a musician makes through the music that connects. All of it, all of jazz music, in some way. I cannot say though that there is uh, something that I can think of uh, that would make for a direct uh, link between something that Sonny does uh, how he uh, in fact I've never played any of Monk's compositions with Sonny so uh, there there are there are intangible influences definitely I'm sure that they they have gone through from Monk to Sonny and Sonny to myself and you know that's just how the music uh, works I believe
0: Just from a a kind of a technical and physical standpoint, Monk's music sounds like it would be a challenge to fit onto the the neck of the guitar. How how does it lay on the guitar, do you find?
1: I I get that question all the time. I think that uh, Monk's music is uh, very personal, and uh, he had a very singular approach conceptually, and uh, how he heard things was very, very uh, unique and uh idiosyncratic, so monk 's music probably lays a little bit differently on any instrument other than monk 's piano but mm, as far as your your question's concerned no it it really is not it 's not what you think or it 's not what people think when they think about some kind of inherent difficulty i mean monk was uh, uh, Monk had a way that he I believe or I feel that he uh, approached all music, not just his own but all music. He heard those dissonances as something normal to him so what would be a regular old chord to the rest of us would have a, a, a different kind of sound I think in Monk's ears or under his fingers. So uh no uh, some of the melodies are a little bit uh sticky like that work very very different not just for guitar but for any instrument even piano whatever but for the most part i think it's just i just had to deal with his music you know evidence is is a, is a it's not standard it's not the, well it kind of is the harmony is but the rhythms are not so you have to approach each tune uh like you would any any other uh composition or the, the piece that you're trying to learn you know you, you've got to really get inside it and and figure out what's going on to have any kind of a familiarity or command with it you
0: did uh did getting inside the music uh, obviously you've played monk tunes before, but did getting inside the music to make this record uh, reveal things to you about his music uh, that you hadn't really considered before?
1: Just the uh, very very personal nature of uh, of his thinking, his his writing and um, the uh, the beauty of his melodies uh, which I never. Uh, really thought much of before uh, really studying and uh, researching, investigating the tunes that, uh, you know, the possibilities because, you know, it was uh, a process of uh, discovery and um, some elimination. You know, well, I like that one, but I can't do it. It doesn't seem like it sounds right on the guitar. It's not uh doesn't speak well uh um, through the guitar for me or whatever. So uh there was a lot of that but in in uh, uh, arriving at the tunes that I did uh, of course we know Ruby my dear is a gorgeous melody. Um but reflections and ask me now, you know those are gorgeous melodies and I don't know if we uh if the general public Really associates beauty with uh, Thelonious Monk, but they very well should.
0: With a with a composer, and you've you've kind of described him this way also as as individual as Monk, someone who put his stamp on his music in such a particular way. Uh, does that either make it more challenging, or does it make it easier for you to, therefore, kind of interpret the music with your own voice and your own approach?
1: Well, I'm glad you said that because uh, it's a bit of a sticking point. I think that some people, uh, listeners, jazz aficionados, <laughs> so to speak, feel that uh, there are certain ways that a musician should approach Monk's music. You know that it should be quote monkish. I have no idea what that means, but I, I, I guess I could venture to guess, but, and I just really, I I never did think that uh, I would do, that's not my way uh, of of, um, approaching any music to, uh, well, such and such person wrote this tune, so I'm going to play now like that person, uh, I'm I'm going to take on their characteristics. Uh, First of all, I don't think I can do that. So uh, it behooves me not to try, you know. So same thing for in the case of of Monk. I mean, he's like I said. We keep using the word uh, individual. So no, I I I didn't think that I would that it was necessary even to utilize uh, uh, dissonances in my. Uh, solos or try to vary my rhythms or alter my rhythms in any way to reflect something that Monk might have done. I thought that the compositions themselves were Monkish enough, and then, you know, Charlie Rouse didn't play like Monk, you know, uh, Phil Wood didn't play like Monk, Train didn't, you know, it, so it was that kind of thinking that I approached the music with.
0: As I uh, mentioned in the beginning, this album is a, a trio recording with Dennis Carroll and Kobe Watkins and uh, you guys have not only been together for a while but you uh, have a, a regular gig, you play together all the time. How does that uh, kind of assist uh, what what are the benefits of regularity and longevity when it comes to to trio playing?
1: Well, to any uh, to anything, it uh, adds a certain level of comfort and uh, familiarity and trust which is a, a key component to uh the relationship of music making any group dynamic really you know or or relationship that's a a, a very strong uh very important uh, element is trust so uh and that's something that has to be developed over time with familiarity and with just that so so uh, that's the upside the downside is of course you know it's a difficult thing uh, in some ways to play at, uh... at the same venue uh... on a weekly basis there is the possibility of um, uh... complacency and those kinds of things so I, uh, my approach to to playing Music is that uh, I mean I always feel That it's a dire Situation and I don't know if I mean Dire in a negative sense Just just very very serious And very important no matter Where I am So once the music starts it You know I could be anywhere You know it could be Carnegie Hall It could be a little dive It doesn't matter to me um, But uh, so, So that's my approach and hopefully that is what informs the group I think that I gravitate and hope that I attract that in the musicians that I associate with and I believe that um, we all feel this way
0: how do you avoid complacency
1: well I mean there's no uh, end point really in what we do there's not uh, I mean, we can have a great performance but it, we don't pack it up after that, like, okay, that proves everything, and now everyone knows because <laughs> you know that's just not the case, so there's always something to strive for, there's always the next performance, there's always something that could have been done better, there's always uh more. Uh, to achieve and accomplish in the world and personally as musicians, so there's nothing to be complacent about.
0: Yes, and I I hear you from a philosophical standpoint, but I can't imagine that's the conversation you actually have as you're taking your instruments out, you know, in the steakhouse on Wednesday night or whatever. So, how what what do you actually do as musicians? to push each other What what is the bandstand conversation like that actually causes you to just not play the same thing you've played the previous 300 well bandstands?
1: the bandstand the bandstand uh, is the conversation is in the music It's in the music. And if it's not there, then we have to have a conversation about why isn't it there or what. I mean, these guys, we work together now for a long time, Dennis and I, for 20 years. He'll be the first one to say, in fact, I probably got the phrase from him that, you know, I approach every gig like Carnegie Hall. That's what he says about me. So he knows that whenever we hit the bandstand, it's time to play. That's just how. That's just the approach. It's never a uh, nonchalant whatever. Oh yeah, this is just the steakhouse again. I mean, anybody that uh, approaches playing music with me like that won't play with me for very long. You see, it's not really. I mean, it is philosophical when you have to talk about it, but uh, the 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 uh, intent is just that.
0: you also uh, a very committed educator uh, and have, have made that a, a big part of your life um, for decades now. Uh, I wonder what you see as...
1: Man, really has it been that
0: long? <laughs> yeah, I, sorry, I can edit that out to say for weeks if you prefer. <laughs> it's been hours now since you started teaching. But, uh, it feels like 20 years. <laughs> I won't say anything if you won't. Okay. Um, what, what do you see as the role of the the academy kind of writ large in in the current and future of jazz
1: well i wish i could say or maybe not i don't know you know um, i think that uh... on one hand jazz as an institutionalized art form is a great thing because it affords the music it's just due uh... in terms of uh recognition, uh accreditation, um, you know, those things that uh, make it high art, which it is. So I the downside is perhaps some kind of um, preservation uh, via codification. So, you know, maybe taking some of the life out of the music because in order to codify it you have to you know make it still you know it's got to sit still you have to pick certain uh, examples of uh... the standard which we have uh... and we we've done that before you know we've we've been doing that that's what has uh, the, the allowed the music to evolve uh... among musicians where am i going with this i i, I just I just hope that that in uh institutionalizing jazz it remains the direction uh and the uh the uh, uh ownership remains in the hands of musicians I'll put it that way.
0: Yeah it sounds like some tension between you know using the resources of the academy to provide what the the marketplace really can't anymore and, wh- mm-hmm. and on the flip side of it there's the danger of making jazz into a museum piece into music that has stopped in time and is not progressing further
1: well that and that the uh owners if you will uh become the educators and not the musicians so you know that's a problem too unless of course the educators are musicians that's there there lies the rub i guess
0: Uh, In addition to um, the trio that's on uh, Plays for Monk, you're also part uh, of another really outstanding band, the Deep Blue Organ Trio. I wonder if you could just talk for a minute about uh, how that group came together.
1: Uh, That's Chris Foreman on the Hammond B3 organ and Greg Rockingham on drums. And we met in the early 90s um, as we were bouncing around doing different gigs around Chicago they heard about me and came out to hear me play and vice versa. So Greg and Chris have been playing together for, oh boy, I can't even twenty five years or something ridiculous like that. And um they brought me on around that time in the nineties, early nineties and we played in different configurations. Sometimes we had a horn player, percussionist, vocalist, whatever. We were, you know, Doing gigs around town And then we got a trio gig At the Cotton Club here in Chicago um, Chris can tell you the dates Because he's like a savant Like that But it was in the early 90s And I, we kept it for about two years It was a Tuesday or Thursday night gig And um, that was that We continued to play on and off And then in 99 We realized something special In the chemistry that we have and decided that we would really um, take this seriously and record. And, you know, that was the plan, not that we could implement it, but it kind of happened. We uh, got a call from uh, the owner of the Green Mill, Dave Jemalow, and uh, a band uh, was leaving the Tuesday night slot, and uh, he wanted to know if we could fill it. And uh, we said, sure, you know So we started that And then Delmark Records came along And wanted us to record So uh, that was uh, how we got got going
0: You guys chose to title uh, Your most recent recording folk music Can you talk a little bit about that title?
1: Well, that was uh, just to kind of play on words um, uh, In that... uh, as far as I'm concerned jazz is America's folk music and uh, you know we also thought well playing playing music for the folks was a kind of uh uh just a nice way of uh, of dealing with it all so so that's what that's what that was about In the day in this, even in the 70s, there was always a club uh, or several in uh, the black neighborhoods that had a B3 organ. Just you know, I'm talking about a bar, and uh, they had a B3 organ, and you know, an organ group was was playing, and folks were just sitting around and grew up into the music. That <laughs> just seems uh, like a long time ago, and and a, a real fond memory.
0: You've chosen to make the city of Chicago your your base of operations. Why did you make that choice and how has it worked out?
1: Well, you know, I think it's worked out okay so far, so good, really. Um being from New York was a great thing as a jazz musician, even one that grew up in the 70s. You know, there was still an energy I mean, there always is, you know, New York is uh, where everyone goes, so, but I'm talking about the scene uh, in New York City at the time of the 70s, I mean, I could go, if I could get into a place, especially as a young kid, I could go and, and, and sit in with Al Haig, you know, Charlie Parker's piano player, and... Things like that, you know, uh, I could go down to the village as an 18- or 19-year-old kid and and start working uh, uh, among professional musicians. I mean, yeah, I I guess I was okay, I was good enough, but it just seems like not doable to me today. So that just instilled in me all kinds of uh, feeling of possibility and, uh, I mean, you know, I, I, as a kid coming up, I felt, I was so in love with jazz music and uh, modern jazz, you know, mainstream jazz, that I felt, man, you know, I missed my, I missed the boat, you know, I was born 20 years, 30 years too late, you know, I'm not going to be able to do this, uh, because this is, I knew it wasn't the popular music. And we, did, we didn't really have, and I'm, I'm trying to think of the role models that we had that were really playing straight-ahead music, which was what I was pursuing. And I, I, just, you know, I just felt like I missed it. Uh, and that was very, very disheartening. And then I continued to practice, though. I mean, that never stopped me. I never, you know, uh, thought, well, I'm going to do some other kind of music. No, no. Um, and I played in funk bands but jazz was always um, you know my 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 love and so but then to meet people like Al Hague and play with him and, and, and Walter Bishop Jr., Sonny Rollins and Art Blakey oh my goodness you know so if this can happen that's great so I moved to Chicago in 84 or so and um, you know I was in the Pursuit of my own self and life, and um, I met a woman and and got into a relationship, and was having a downtime in my career as far as uh, working and the feeling about everything that had happened up to that point. So I felt, well, I need to go back to college and finish my degree, and you know, I had two or so years to uh, to finish up my undergrad. So I'll go to Chicago, I'll pursue this relationship, and I'll do that. I mean, you know, that's crazy thinking (laughs) for a New York (laughs) musician. And everybody was, I'm sure, like, this dude is nuts. And I was. But I did it, and um, it was difficult. I got my degree, and uh, about a year into living here, I found myself traveling. I was on the road again, keeping the the same relationships that I had when I left and developing new ones. I met Kenny Burrell and he formed the jazz guitar band and I lived here. I played with Miles Davis from here. I could go on and on, you know, I kept making connections. So that part was okay. Yeah, I felt like, well, you know, I left some things behind. Maybe I could have recorded more, been considered more a part of that group of the young lions, you know, but, in hindsight, now, 25 years later, I feel that uh, maybe it was a good saying uh, that I did leave. When I left New York, the star guitarists were uh, Schofield and Mike Stern, and if you didn't sound like them, you know you weren't going to work much. Well, uh, I moved here and focused on my own ideas and my own sound, which was you know based more on the Charlie Christian, West Montgomery Grant Green. Kenny Burrell, George Benson, that clean-toned jazz guitar. And um, so all the other stuff was, you know, I listened to the records and everything, but uh, I was a little bit removed and could focus more on what I, I had in mind.
0: While you were telling that story, you tossed it in there like you were saying, I had a cheese sandwich, but you tossed in, I played with Miles, and I know you played five, I think it was five dates with Miles, right? So I, it was on my list of things to ask you, and I was going to leave it to the end, and if if you didn't say anything, I was just going to let it go. But you, now you've invoked the name, so now we, we need to hear the story of you and Miles Davis.
1: Well, uh, you know, yeah, it was kind of like a cheese sandwich, like half a cheese sandwich, not even grilled. <laughs> and cheese slices on the bread but no I mean I used to leave that off my resume and folks said man what are you doing you know well you better put that on your resume I'm like oh, I only did five gigs with him you know it really wasn't they're like well Hiram Bullock only did three and I'm like really okay well maybe I should <laughs> put it on there then you know so Miles had a band uh, in uh, the mid-'80s that was made up uh, primarily of Chicagoans. It was Robert Irving the Third on uh, keyboards and uh, Daryl Jones on bass. So these are guys that I, you know, knew, and uh, they... I had a you know they liked me and and my playing I mean and so they recommended me to Miles when he was looking for for guitar uh, I got a call you know Miles wants to hear you wants to put wants you to put a demo together and uh, send it to him so I did and I played my idea of what I mean I know Miles wanted Jimi Hendrix so I played my version of that, which was probably very sad because i never, uh, pursued that style as we spoke about earlier, but I thought, well, let me just fake it. See what happens. I mean, this is Miles Davis. So I did, and I did well enough apparently to get the call to go to New York. It was perfect. I still had my, my place in New York city. And, um, did some gigs with him, and um, you know, I know he realized exactly uh, who he had on the bandstand in me. You know, he would come over and play some bebop lines, you know, in my <laughs> belly, and then walk away with a little funny look, like, yeah, you know, I got you. Um, and um, as quickly as it it happened, it, it was gone. I. I is fine you know it wasn't the gig for me i knew that and um it wasn't like something i was really comfortable doing it wasn't my sound it wasn't my style i was playing with kenny burrell in the jazz guitar band at the same time i mean come on (laughs) you know so i had to call miles and tell him because of course there was a a conflict and uh, i agreed to do the gig with kenny first and so and, you know, I tried to broach it with Kenny, and he wouldn't let me out of it. I was <laughs> like, but it's Miles Davis. He'd say, you know, he didn't want to have anything to do with that. So I had to call Miles and tell him. That was that was interesting. But I did it, and I called a sub, and it's all in the book. There's a, a, a book that came out a few years ago uh, called The Last Miles, and it's, uh, I think, from 81 to his death and it uh, recounts all of the stories of his bands and just the whole thing it's really quite interesting.
0: Yeah, I've read that book actually and cool. I, and I agree. That's well, good. I'm glad you chose to stay true to yourself because uh, we're all we're all benefiting. My guest is Bobby Broom. Uh, the new album is on Origin Records. It's called Plays for Monk, and you should also, uh, while you're out there getting that one, be sure to pick up uh, albums by the Deep Blue Organ Trio, the most recent of which is Folk Music, which you'll also find on Origin Records. Uh, Bobby, it's been a real pleasure to talk to you, and uh, I'm Thank glad you. you took the time. Thanks very much.
1: Thanks for, for, for having me. I appreciate it.
0: That's Bobby Broom from his album on the Origin Records label Plays for Monk. You've been listening to The Jazz Session. I'm Jason Crane. The Jazz Session is presented by AllAboutJazz.com, the web's leading source for jazz news, reviews, MP3 downloads, and more. Every episode of The Jazz Session is also available for free at TheJazzSession.com and in iTunes. The Jazz Session has an email mailing list, which is a great way to win free music. You can sign up at thejazzsession.com. If you're on Facebook, there's a group for The Jazz Session, and I give away music there, too. The theme music for this show is by the Respect Sextet online at respectsextet.com. Thanks also to Dave Rabel, who designed the Jazz Session's logo. The Jazz Session is distributed under a Creative Commons Attribution Non-Commercial No Derivative Works 3.0 United States License. Thanks very much for listening. Please support live jazz whenever and wherever you can, and come back next time for another conversation about jazz on the Jazz Session. loving everybody
1: bye bye,
0: bye.